When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary. Because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound Off on Bloomberg Radio. After an hour-long meeting in the White House today, we're looking for the conclusions, if any, reached by President Joe Biden and Republican senators on the infrastructure legislation. Plus, another cyber hack exposes vulnerabilities in yet another industry. What the head of the Congressional Beef Caucus thinks Congress needs to do? I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Sound On. Joining me now is Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno. And joining us on the line is Congressman Henry Cuellar, a Democrat from Texas and co-chair of the Congressional Beef Caucus. Congressman, I just want to start right away with the JBS hack. Uh, you know, it produces nearly a quarter of all beef in the country. And one of the plants that was shut down was in your state of Texas. I just want to start, if you can sort of sum it up for all of us, what impact has this hack had on beef manufacturers, on other producers involved in the beef process? And will we be able to get hamburgers this week? Yes, you'll be able to get hamburgers this week. And, uh, you know, certainly the cyber attack on JBS, as you know, it's one of the uh, it's the world's largest meat processor, uh, did have an impact, including, you know, here in Texas. You know, certainly what we uh, have learned that it's probably some sort of criminal organization likely based in Russia. And we've seen this, this attacks on on the private sector. We saw the colonial pipeline. We saw what happened. Now, of course, uh, JBS has been attacked also. And this does affect, uh, you know, the uh, meat industry in so many ways. And as you know, you know, the prices um, have increased for meat. Uh, it was been increasing for several reasons. And certainly this is going to have an impact uh, on the prices of uh, meat. Uh, but uh, the good thing is, is that this disruption uh, has been taken care of and it's starting to move again. And uh, certainly the administration's response is to make sure that USDA um, has contacted several other major meat processors and encouraged them to keep the supplies moving and slaughter additional livestock when possible. So it sounds like this time, 
the hack was resolved fairly quickly. We're not going to see anything like giant lines stretching outside of McDonald's the same way we did with the Colonial Pipeline. But, but really, on a serious note here, we've seen these cyber attacks, it seems, again and again and again. What is Congress doing to address these cybersecurity threats? Well, you know, certainly one of the things we need to do is we need to focus um, uh, on four things. One, we need to make sure that we establish a comprehensive cybersecurity strategy. Uh, and we, as members of Congress, we need to perform that effective oversight on that. we got to secure federal systems uh, information. And certainly when we talk about cyber critical infrastructure protection, uh, that is something that involves not only the federal government, but... As you've seen, the recent attacks uh, that we saw uh, on uh, Colonial and, of course, on, 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 on uh, JBS, we're seeing that they're starting to attack also some of the infra critical infrastructure in the private sector. And so, Congressman, I want to follow up on that. I mean, we're hearing reports today that there has been an attack, apparently, maybe from China on the MTA in New York. You mentioned Colonial and, of course, JBS. I heard somebody today describe crypto as the oxygen that is fueling these ransomware fires. Do you think Congress can and should take any steps on crypto in terms of regulating it as a way to stop or at least address some of these attacks? Well, you know, certainly uh, Congress needs to take several steps and some of them, as you know, uh, whether it's legislation or additional funding, uh, to do this, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, so we're calling on this partnership between uh, the feds and, of course, the private sector so we can uh, work together because some of the, uh, you know, for example, some of the things that I've been working on is to make sure that, you know, we look at cybersecurity programs, uh, but that takes time to build a what we call a civilian cyber workforce to hire individuals to make sure they have the necessary uh, security clearance if they're going to be working uh, for the uh, federal government, let's say for the Secretary of Defense. Uh, so it does take a little bit of time. So in the meanwhile, you know, we just got to in, in, um, get our partnerships with the private sector and make it stronger. And literally, we got to make sure that we understand one thing is that, you know, we've seen two recent attacks, uh, JBS, Colonial. Uh, and I don't think it would be the last time. And you saw uh, what Putin said before the meeting that he's going to have with um, uh, with uh, President Biden, that he's going to make some uncomfortable uh, signals. And I think we're seeing some of those uncomfortable signals. Congressman, does something to prevent more cybersecurity hacks need to be included in the upcoming infrastructure plan that Congress and President Biden are currently negotiating on? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, that should be part of that. No ifs, no buts about it. Uh, I sit on the Appropriations Committee, and I certainly want to make sure that we uh, provide funding, uh, not only for the workforce, because if you look at it, when it comes to cybersecurity, we are in need of so many uh, people to go into the cybersecurity field. I mean, we're short uh, in that. Uh, so, you know, whether they go work for the federal government or whether they go work for the civilian uh, workforce, we need more people to get into STEM. Uh, so certainly Congress is going to be, uh, you know, I certainly in the appropriations, I'm looking at some of the long term uh, solutions and some of the more uh, medium term 
uh, solutions. Congressman, you also today went down to the U.S.-Mexico border with a bipartisan, bicameral group of lawmakers. And I know that this group has also introduced legislation to address the surge in migrants coming across the border to, to boost the capacity of the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice. Can you talk a little bit today about your trip to the border as well as, the, as that legislation? Is that something that you think has a chance of passing? Is it something that your colleagues are are interested in yes you know first of all you know you see visits by different uh, members of congress or senators that come only democrats only republicans uh, ours was very different uh, we had uh, democrats and republicans we had house members and uh, senate members uh, senator cornyn senator cinema uh, uh, congressman tony gonzalez so it was a bipartisan visit and I think that's what we need to do more. Uh, and when we look at the border issue, uh, it's not a Republican or Democratic issues. We've got to sit down and, and come up with practical solutions to some of the problems that we're facing down there. So, yes, um, I think our uh, bipartisan has a possibility of passing. And, in fact, some of it might be piecemeal. For example, one of the things we call was to have a special docket uh, for uh, the, the cases, the immigration cases. Well, if you notice this last Friday, the administration called, uh, is calling or is going to set up a special docket to handle those immigration cases. So I think, you know, people are looking at our bills, getting ideas, and, and for us, that's good. You know, I don't care how we get this passed, whether it's through the administration or through the House or through the Senate. Uh, all we are interested in is, is finding practical solutions to those real problems that we have at the border. And Congressman, just following up on what you were saying about the administration's work on this, at one point you were urging the White House to listen more to border towns and constituents in your district. Do you feel that the White House, and particularly the vice president who's been charged with this, are they doing enough listening? And more importantly, are they responding to what they're hearing in your estimation? Uh, I think they can definitely do a lot more uh, to listen to border communities. For example, um, as you know, uh, they're letting people in uh, uh, and not worry about the health issue. Uh, but when we talk about the legal visa holders from Mexico or Canada, but in this case, let's talk about Mexico. Those are the legal visa holders that come and spend billions of dollars. In fact, before the pandemic, there would be over 18 million Mexicans that would spend over $19 billion. And um, they're not letting those people in. Uh, and they call that a health issue. Uh, and without due respect, uh, I mean, those are the exactly the essential people that we need to come in so they can help uh, continue building up our economy. I mean, we've lost over $19 billion in the last year because we just haven't let those visa holders from Mexico come in. That doesn't even include the Canadians. So think about it. We're losing billions of dollars, and you're telling me that we cannot find a way to safely uh, open up the border. And if you listen uh, to the border communities where some of them depend on more than, you know, on their uh, customers from Mexico, some of them are over 40% are Mexican shoppers. So imagine if you took almost 50% of all your shoppers away Imagine how your small business will be operating right now. 
That's what I mean. They need to listen to border communities. Congressman, I want to get in one quick question on infrastructure. I know that you're one of the more moderate Democrats in Congress. Uh, Just very quickly here, how much longer should President Biden spend negotiating with Republicans before having to come to a decision on whether he's going to go with Republicans or go it alone? Well, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I think uh, they're coming, uh, I think they're meeting again, uh, uh, and I hope that they give it a good shot. I think they're uh, getting closer, uh, and if we can do something that's bipartisan, that's the way we ought to get it done. In well, a thank you. Way. Let's give it one thank more you so, Thank you so much, Congressman, for joining us. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Bloomberg White House correspondent Josh Wingrove. Well, we are getting several headlines that are crossing the terminal right now. After President Biden met with West Virginia Republican Shelley Moore Capito, she has been the lead negotiator for Senate Republicans on the infrastructure plan. The White House and Senate Republicans have been getting closer and closer over the last several months, but they are still pretty far apart. A couple headlines crossing the terminal right now. A Biden and Capito's infrastructure meeting, it was constructive and frank. They met for about an hour, and they've also agreed to reconnect on Friday, according to the White House. Josh Wingrove, our man at the White House, break this down for us. What exactly does it mean? Because I feel like we keep having these meetings between President Biden and Republicans, and they keep coming out of the room and saying, oh, you know, it was very constructive, it went very well, but there's still more than $700 billion apart. They haven't gotten an agreement on how to pay for things yet. What's your takeaway from this latest meeting? Yeah, I mean, I think the readout signals that the clock is still ticking, and you're absolutely right that they're far apart, particularly if you compare the net spending numbers, right? Republicans are coming from a position where they're looking to repurpose funding that has already been allocated, uh, you know, in particular what they see as unused or unnecessary funding from previous packages. So they, they remain at loggerheads, and Biden has sort of hinted that he's interesting and interested in, A, moving quickly, and B, entertaining any sort of dueling talks with other groups of senators so uh, you know i they they had downplayed expectations for today's meeting jen saki saying look they're not going to be exchanging paper that sort of thing uh so in that sense this isn't a surprise i suppose the news is that they're going to reconnect on friday whatever that means whether in person uh or remotely yet another zoom meeting perhaps you know <laughs> the era we live in uh but i 
uh, whether this brings them closer to a deal, uh, I, I don't know. I think the people that have been uh, skeptical about the fate of this uh, so far are probably feeling pretty comfort, comfortable with that starting position. Well, we have one of those skeptics with us, Jeannie Shonzano, uh, who I, th- I think has sort of held the, the skeptic torch throughout these discussions. I mean, Jeannie, we initially talked about having some deadline here for Memorial Day that has come and gone. Now, over the weekend, we heard Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg say that they would need a quote-unquote clear direction by June 7th. So that is next Monday. I, I mean, Jeannie, how much longer can these negotiations between Biden and Republicans continue before an actual decision needs to be made? Well, you're absolutely right. We had Pete Buttigieg over the weekend. You know, some people said playing, you know, bad cop to Joe Biden's good cop, all in an effort, obviously, to appeal to the Joe Mansions of the world that they are absolutely pursuing this this sort of deal. But to me, and I, you're right, Emily, you know, because we've talked about it so many times, I have been a skeptic, not because of anything Biden or Capitol, what any of these people are doing. But if you look at the history here with a 50-50 split, the idea that you would be able to close this kind of gap and get 10 Republican senators to the side when they are still debating about how you define infrastructure, let alone as you and Joshua just talking about how you pay for it and how big the bill should be. I remain a skeptic. And as Josh said, I feel fairly comfortable in that position and I'm not that prescient. So (laughs) that should say something. (laughs) I mean, uh, Josh, from uh, what about you? What do you think the timeline needs to be here for President Biden? You know, I'm usually over in Congress, and we've seen the rhetoric just ratchet up from progressives who have gone to President Biden, to Speaker Pelosi, to Chuck Schumer, and said, look, we need to get this done, and Democrats need to go it alone. Republicans are asking far too little. I mean, they are putting pressure or trying to put pressure on President Biden. Have you seen anything from what Biden has said or what we've heard from Jen Psaki to indicate whether or not they're feeling that heat from their party to try? and go it alone. I think there are subtle signs, you know, one sort of click of the dial that they're starting to talk a little bit more about the fact that they're not willing to, you know, do this dance forever, that they, you know, wanted a timeline. But at the same time, and I, you know, I really, I'm not trying to speak out of both sides of my mouth here, but they, they, at the same time, they're letting their sort of soft deadlines pass. Remember, they wanted progress by Memorial Day. I mean, I, the beholder, I suppose, but I'm not really sure that we can call where we're at progress or certainly not significant progress. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, Biden's team, as we all know, is stacked by folks who saw them lose the House in the midterms under Obama, lose the House in the midterms under Clinton. I think there absolutely is a sense that they want to, you know, go big. They'd rather do something than not do something, but Biden continues to at least pay public lip service to the notion that, A, these talks can go somewhere, but more broadly than that, that B, bipartisanship can still exist in Washington. And, you know, the the incentive structures just seem like they're less and less there right now for both parties to cooperate. You know, Jeannie, we've got about 30 seconds left. So I want to ask you, Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, said that he needed there to be good 
faith bipartisan negotiations before he would agree to any sort of Democrat thing. Do you think at this point we can say that there have been good faith bipartisan negotiations? Should, should Joe Manchin sort of feel like that requirement is met? I think we can say that. I think I can say that. I'm not sure Joe Manchin will say that. And we know he's uh, Biden was frustrated with him yesterday. I'm Emily Wilkins here today with our Bloomberg Politics contributor, Jeannie Sean Zeno, and White House correspondent Josh Wingrove. Well, as Biden has met today with Republicans in the White House, he has also started to put pressure on members of his own party. While in Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma yesterday, Biden said that he hears folks on TV criticizing Biden for not getting things done. And the president partially blamed, quote, two members of the Senate who vote more with my Republican friends. It's believed the president was referring to Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Senma, who have bucked the president on legislation and oppose filibuster reform that a large number of progressive Democrats are calling for to pass President Biden's initiatives. When asked today about the president, Commons White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said it was not a criticism. Here's the sound on that. It was not, no, that he considers them both friends. He considers them both good working partners. Uh, and he also believes that in democracy, we don't have to see eye to eye on every detail of every single issue in order to work together. You know, regardless if, if President Biden decides to go with Republicans or with Democrats, he is probably going to need Manchin and Cinema on his side to pass any sort of infrastructure legislation. Uh, Josh, you cover Biden, you cover the White House. What was he thinking when he made these comments yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we talked in the last segment about demands of progressives. I think that Biden was giving voice to frustration in the White House that they're, you know, measured against what they're able to do and what they're able to not do. And of course, uh, in many respects, Senator Manchin is the deciding factor in what they're able to do. So this is Biden was a bit of a habit of going off script saying, look, you know, don't look at me necessarily. It's not, not that I don't want to do that. It's a question of what can be done. That said, uh, you know, I, I think it was a bit of a shot across the bow of Manchin and Cinema. But uh, I, I, as far as Biden goes, I'm not sure that he would really, uh, you know, sharpen his knives uh, on this one. I, I think uh, that overall he understands that Manchin uh, is doing what he has to do. And of course, Democrats remain more confident uh, in the Senate than the House heading into the midterms. So uh, he doesn't want to, I think, rattle the cage too much. Now, where does that leave him broadly? Like Biden, you know, this is the sort of animating feature of the Democratic Party right now. How can he hold together the coalitions? I think progressives have been, you know, arguably pleasantly surprised by the administration so far, which has gone bigger than they kind of feared he would. Joe Biden wasn't exactly Mr. Progressive, you know, as of the day he took office. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think he's trying to still thread that needle and, and we'll see that he does not make a habit of calling senators out all that much, even gently. So I think that's why that's one kind of popped on the radar. Yeah, you know, I mean, President Biden, he's he was a member of the Senate for for decades. He, you know, says he really plays up the relationships that he has with senators on this. Uh, another sort of tricky needle that, that President Biden's going to need to be threading is going to become later this month, June 16th, Geneva, Switzerland. He will meet with President Vladimir Putin. And this is coming after a number of cybersecurity hacks, including the most recent one that we saw today with JPS uh, that have been linked to 
criminal organizations within Russia. Biden said he doesn't believe that Putin is testing the U.S. with attacks, but we did hear today from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki that the Russian government does hold some responsibility for criminal entities in their country. The U.S. is not taking any options off the table. Here's the sound on that. President Biden certainly thinks that uh, President Putin and the Russian government has a role to play in uh, stopping and preventing these attacks. This will certainly be a topic of discussion that uh, harboring criminal uh, entities that are intending to do harm, that are doing harm to the critical infrastructure in the United States is not acceptable. We're not going to stand by that. We will raise that and we are not going to take options off the table. You know, Josh, at the start of his presidency, Biden tried to go for a reset with Russia, saying he would take tougher stances. But last month, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham called the Biden administration weak in response to their response to the colonial pipeline hack. Josh, what does the Biden administration, do they need to step up how they respond to Russia here? Well, I think we'll see some clues uh, in that as we get towards the summit in terms of what it's going to look like. Are they going to take questions? Uh, you know, is Biden going to do a press conference to tee it up? Will there be a joint statement? All these are sort of swirling in the air. And, of course, this is poised to sort of come on the end of a couple of summits where Biden will be with a sort of a friendlier crowd. It was a funny moment today when he gave an announcement on uh, vaccines, uh, domestic push around vaccines, saying, look, you know, he was... Uh, he, he was asked by someone, do you, think, do you think Putin is sort of baiting him and uh, or testing him and he said he smiled and chuckled and said no as he walked off stage so i think i think that biden views this as a long-term thing i think all his comments would tell you that russia is is more uh more an adversary for sure and almost a sort of bully and a thorn but biden when he talks about the sort of geopolitical struggles within the u.s he talks more about china so i think the the putin thing should be placed in that context. He views Russia as, uh, you know, uh, they, they want what they, they, said, they call a predictable relationship with Russia, no bones about some sort of collegial affair, but it's China that they really see as the one they got to focus their attention on. Yeah, Jeannie, we have just about 30 seconds left, but I'm wondering, in two weeks from now, when Biden shakes Putin's hand and, and begins the discussions with him in Geneva, what does Biden need to say to Putin? What sort of tone does he need to strike? Well, Joe Biden and, and Vladimir Putin go back a long time, and he has been tough, I think, in his rhetoric on Putin. But, of course, rhetoric doesn't often work with Putin. I think as it pertains to these cyber attacks, the United States is going to have to put pressure on Putin and Russia to hold the people in their country accountable for these attacks. And then he is going to have to follow that up with action to make sure that happens. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Bloomberg White House correspondent Josh Wingrove. We had some breaking news right at the start of the show I want to dive into a little bit now. If you are an investor and you have been confused about the ban on investments in companies linked to the Chinese military, 
clarification is on the way. President Biden said he would amend the ban after the Trump era policy was challenged in court and left investors confused about the extent of the ban's reach. We're going to see a couple changes, including the Treasury Department creating the list of companies that could face financial penalties for their connection to China's defense, surveillance and technology sectors. Josh, right before the break, you were pointing out that China is really sort of the number one priority for the Biden administration when it comes to international and foreign policy. Walk us through the importance of this investment ban. How much pain does it inflict on China and how much pain does it inflict on the average investor? Well, you know, great reporting here from our colleagues, Jenny Leonard, Jennifer Jacobs, Soleil Mosin. And, you know, the, the confusion dated back to the Trump era here, right? This was a ban that really had head spinning and still has head spinning. So Biden, the report from our colleagues here is that Biden is going to amend the order and the Treasury is going to create a list of companies that could face penalties for their connection to China's defense industries. And, you know, that, that is a slight departure from what Trump was doing, and we expect that amended order in the coming week. You know, they're going to essentially argue that this is clarity, but I think the backdrop, just to build briefly on what I said earlier, is that, that uh, you know, Biden has in some ways, you know, t- picked up the baton from Trump on certain China measures, but where Trump tended to talk more about a trade deal and an opportunity uh, uh, there and sort of rebalancing China in terms of the trade deficit. Biden tends to view it a little more adversarially, and, but you know, I think I think certainty was I think the, the core, given the confusion that entered here. Sure. And we also saw earlier today uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen having a first phone call with one of her counterparts in China. We also saw a call last week with U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai and her Chinese counterpart. Uh, You know, Josh, uh, obviously the Trump administration, a big news story near the end of, of their time was this focus on getting a trade deal nailed down with China. That phase one agreement is going to expire later this year. What should we be expecting and looking out for when it comes to how President Biden is going to be approaching this trade agreement with China? Because it seems like the very earliest of talks are underway, but obviously have a long way to go. I mean, I think it's very early to say. I think what is clear, though, that he has not gone in with the same sort of let's make a deal mantra that his predecessor did. I think Joe Biden would be happy to not have any such deal in particular because there's a lot of questions still about how much china has actually purchased as measured against what donald trump said publicly to be the terms of the first deal you know it's uh it's been uh, lower than trump uh, had said would be the case uh, so look i think i think we'll see those talks roll forward but uh the deal that biden inherited is just that a deal that he inherited and i don't think that he feels particularly beholden to make it work and Josh, I wanted to ask you, because you just alluded to it, that, that he inherited this. Um, but one thing I hear a lot of criticism about from certain sectors is that Biden has yet to lay out his approach to China in a meaningful way. In fact, I hear this even more broadly about his approach to foreign policy. Um, what is you, What are you hearing in terms of how the Biden administration is going to differentiate itself? It's got some tougher language than, say, Barack Obama did. But in terms of differentiating differentiating itself from the Trump administration vis-a-vis China, what are you hearing? You know, it's, a, it's a great question, and those, those are definitely criticisms or questions that have been circulating. And I think the Biden people would say something to the effect of, 
you know, cut up some slack. It's only been a few months, but the clock's ticking. I think it's it's fair for them to sketch out where they're going to go. There was a report from our Bloomberg colleagues in Europe that one step, for instance, might come at the G7 in about a week, a week and a half time, that there'll be a, a plan to lay out a sort of counter to Belt and Road more around green infrastructure. I think we'll see that sort of measures from him, but I think you're absolutely right. Well, what Joe Biden sort of thinks about it, uh, it remains a little unclear, although I would note and point to that statement last week, that it was a surprise statement around uh, continuing investigation as to the origins of the coronavirus that tees up a report in the fall that could lead Joe Biden to sort of smack China for, you know, either obfuscating the origins of that pandemic or, you know, worse, allowing it potentially to leak uh, accidentally from that lab. And that, that, of course, would tee up what could be his first meeting with President Xi in the fall of the G20. So I, I think I think that absolutely you're right that the, the, sort of the door has not been opened yet on what exactly Joe Biden's full attitude is for China. He kind of wants to have his cake and eat it too right now, sort of, you know, not rocking the boat too much, but signaling that, that, that he does want to sort of slowly shift the focus to China as the chief geopolitical rival of the United States. Well, if China is the biggest focus for Biden on an international scale, the biggest focus for him on a domestic scale has, in the first six months of his presidency, really been the coronavirus. And today, Biden said that his administration will be doubling down this month on getting more Americans vaccinated. According to the CDC, a little more than 62% of adults have gotten at least one shot. But the president says he wants 70% of the adults to get one dose by July 4th. So a little more than a month, 8% left to go. We have sound on the president unveiling a series of new initiatives while also reminding Americans of a few incentives. Anheuser-Busch announced that beer is on them on July the 4th. That's right. Get a shot and have a beer. Free beer for everyone 21 years or over to celebrate the independence from the virus. That is not the usual beer and shot that I think most people think of when they think of that phrase. Uh, Josh, talk to me a little bit more about this. Uh, is, you know, President Biden set the 70% goal at this point? Does it seem like he's going to wind up meeting it? And if so, what then? He's on pace to meet that goal right now, and uh, or at least come close to it. He'd have to see things really crater off. Uh, And that being said, they have dropped quite a bit. About a month and a half ago, we were at 3.4 million shots a day here in the U.S. Now it's more like 1.2, although that might be a bit of a dip because of the long weekend uh, uh, to the seven-day average. But I think, you know, what we're seeing clearly is the U.S. is running out of arms and they're they're going that sort of last mile. But the bottom line is health officials will tell you that every more vaccine is, is is a step in the right direction. But they sort of dance around this question of herd immunity. The backdrop to this is cases really continue to plunge. You know, hopefully that continues to be the case that uh, the reopening we saw two weeks ago hasn't spurred or doesn't sort of fuel cases that otherwise would not have existed. But, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of, you know, it's going to go step by step on this. Things like partnerships with, uh, with uh, daycares to offer free child care, uh, extending hours of pharmacies, saying, hey, you know, end of the work week Friday night, you can go to your local pharmacy, walk in and get a shot. Uh, more innovative things around college campuses, uh, things like partnerships with black-owned barbershops, really sort of, you know, trying to almost go door-to-door because what the surveys are telling you, what the experts are saying, is that there are people out there not who are refusing to take it, although those people definitely exist, but there's a cohort of people out there that either, you know, just still have questions or still haven't had the time. They're not willing to really, you know, crawl over hurdles to, to get to it. 
uh, or have confusion around it. You know, there's been great reporting by New York Times and others around in particular, uh, like the Latino community, maybe not thinking they're even eligible uh, or people worried about getting a bill, even though the shot is free. So it's, you know, we're, we're into the sort of step-by-step machinations of it. But as of now, even with the drops we've seen, Biden is on pace to hit that. Yeah, and it's not, it's not just the federal government. I, I know that Ohio made a lot of news when they came out with their million-dollar lottery for getting shots. That led to a boost in people who were signing up. And I'm seeing this headline uh, from The Hill that West Virginia will be giving away guns and even trucks as part of a new incentive to get residents of the state inoculated against COVID-19. I mean, Jeannie, you teach you know political science. What are your sort of, how would you ta- approach your students about sort of the incentives that the government's putting out here for what is really a life-saving vaccine? Well, I would tell them to move to Ohio and get the million dollars versus (laughs) the free beer. Um, No, you know, I I do think it is fascinating when we look at it globally that in the United States we are doing these incentives when this is something so much in need in other parts of the world. But as Josh was just talking about, we are talking about some hard-to-reach populations, transient populations, there's confusion out there, people not understanding you know, I know when I got my vaccines, they ask you if you are insured. Of course, you don't have to be insured. The shot is free. But that is the kind of thing that does create some confusion amongst people. So I do think it is a difficult health policy issue that they're trying to struggle to get these people who have been hard to reach and to try to clarify that confusion. So I do think these incentives are helpful in that regard. And we have to say, Joe Biden, the Biden administration, they have exceeded every every sort of, um, you know, bar they've set for this vaccination rate. So I expect that they will do fairly well in this one. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what will happen next after July 4th if they, as Josh pointed out, meet that goal of getting 70% of adults. Is there another goal after that? How does the U.S. continue to move forward? But we're going to have to save that for another show. Thank you so much today to Jeannie Sean Zeno, Josh Wingrove for joining me here. I'm Emily Wilkins. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.